It's really good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, as he's, I don't know if he said, but uh, my wife and I, my family, we've been here for about three and a half months. So we're super new. We've met a few of you. Most of you we haven't met, but uh, I'm starting to get familiar with the faces and everything. So it's really good to be here. Thank you for, um, well, you're not really doing it. I guess you're just sitting there. <laughs> but thank, thank you for being willing to listen to me for the next 45 minutes or so. Um, I'll try and keep it under 45. Um, as, he, as Brent said, I've, I've been a Bible professor for a number of years, about eight years now. I've been teaching at, um, on the college level, teaching the Bible. And, um, it, it's, and before that, I was in a lot of schooling before that. Um, and it's really kind of shocking the, the life path that God has taken me on because growing up, I absolutely hated the study. Like I cheated my way through high school. I didn't read a book from cover to cover until I was like 18 years old. Like I'm, and I and actually got good grades too. It tells you about the... California school system that I went through, but um, um, I, you know, when, when I got saved at around the age of 19, um, somebody told me about uh, James chapter 1, I forget the verse, I think it's verse 5 or something, that, that says, if anybody lacks wisdom, you know, you can pray to God and he will, um, well, the way I interpret it is, if you're not very smart, pray and God will make you smart like overnight, you know, <laughs> pray and God will give you wisdom abundantly, so I prayed that prayer because, you know, growing up hating to study and then now becoming a Christian, I'm like, oh man, this Bible, it's like a big book, you know, and so I'm like, I better learn, I gosh, I have to read it now, and, and God, help me with this, and I literally thought I was going to wake up the next morning smart, it didn't work, Ro- woke up, I was just as stupid as I was before, and like, gosh, this Christianity thing is just getting off on the wrong foot, these prayers don't work, and, um, but I, I noticed in the next, over, literally over the next couple weeks, I, I noticed that all of a sudden, I got this really weird, like creepy weird desire to want to study the Bible. Like to sit in a room for seven hours and just read and keep reading and keep reading. I was like, this is so weird, you know? Like, but it's, you know, we say, you know, you know, God did this, God did that. This was clearly an act of God because there wasn't a, a fabric in my body that desired that before. And really that was, I'm 38 now, that was almost 20 years ago. And uh, I, I, maybe it's not as intense as it used to be, but I still, I still, I still find the Bible so fascinating and compelling. And uh, anybody that says the Bible is boring, you know, I mean, maybe you've heard a lot of boring teachers of the Bible, but the Bible itself is like crazy exciting. And, and I love, one of the things I love to do is, is to take like familiar verses or familiar truths of Christianity and really kind of bring it back on the, t- the, the dissection table, you know, is that, I don't know if that's a thing or not, but the, a table, and you kind of re-examine an old truth and, and see that, man, there's so much more we can understand about things that maybe have become familiar. And in, la- in the last few years, uh, the topic of grace has been just something I've tried to just, you know, look at the Bible and say, what does the Bible really say about grace? Um, and I've seen that. I, I think that there's so much more we can learn about grace. Even if you've been a Christian forever, like you came out of the womb, saved, you know, and like you, you've, you've heard grace, you've talked about grace. You know, sometimes by overusing a term, you can destroy its richness. We name our churches grace. We say grace before our meals. We talk about grace and everything. You know, it's fun. I mean, Christianity... Is supposed to be, you know, what sets us apart from everybody else is that we're a religion of grace. Are we? (laughs) 
You, you know what's fascinating is that on paper, I, I think that's true. I haven't looked at every single religion, but it, as I look at other religions, other worldviews, they, they do seem to be more merit works-based, and Christianity on paper is more grace-based. But when people think of Christianity and Christians, is grace the first thing that comes to their mind? There, there's a saying that um, has been tossed around, um, and, and I, think I've even, I, I think I've actually said it myself okay, a couple times, so um, maybe you have too. The, the saying goes something like this, uh, Jesus, save us, from, save us from your followers. <laughs> Crying out to Jesus, saying, I like you, Jesus, but your followers look nothing like you. Can you rescue me from your own people? And sometimes if you've been in church long enough, maybe you've said that too. I, I've, I've said it, confess, okay, confession time. Um, even, you know, take somebody like Gandhi, famous Hindu leader 100 years ago or so. I mean, he... He actually loved reading the Gospels. And one of his favorite pieces of literature was the Sermon on the Mount. And he had this kind of view that like, man, Jesus, I, I'm compelled by Jesus. But I'm not a Christian because I look at the church and like, well, if that's what it means to be a Christian, if that's what it means to follow Jesus, then, then I, don't really, I don't really want that. But this Jesus person is pretty amazing. There was a... Um, a study a while back, about 10 years ago, uh, maybe less than 10 years ago, that, that surveyed, it surveyed um, an outsider's perspective of Christianity. So it interviewed, um, I think the age group was like 35 and under, okay? And it said, uh, it, it, we did a massive survey of what people 35 and under who were, aren't part of a church, who aren't part of the faith, and, and, and wanted to know what was their perception of, Christi- of Christians, of the church, of, uh, you know, the American evangelical church. When, when, the, when an outsider thinks of Christians, what, what comes to mind? And, and the survey, according to the survey, um, 91%, the, the first thing that came out of the mouths of, of uh, 91% of the people, the first thing was, when I think of Christians, the first thing that comes to mind is anti-homosexual. Number two, 87%, the first thing that comes to mind, these outsiders, 35 and under, when they think of Christians, whether through media, through experience, through being in the church, Christian friends, whatever, 87% said that they are judgmental. First thing that comes to mind, Christians, judgmental. And then a close third, 85%, is that Christians are hypocritical. And I'm not, look, statistics, statistics can be, you know, they're not gospel truth. They're not inspired, you know. It's not like that is completely true of Christians. But what I found fascinating about this is what did Jesus rail against the loudest? Judgmental, hypocritical religious people. And this is, this is for another message, but Jesus never actually mentioned homosexuality. So, so how is it that Jesus' followers have become known for standing for the very things that Jesus stood against. Is grace what sets Christianity apart from everybody else? And so this is, um, I just, I, I, th- there will always be that gap between us and Jesus, right? For most of us, like here's Jesus, 
I don't know, from the scale, or, you know, we're, we're striving for Jesus, we're always, always going to fall short, but I still find it fascinating, maybe discouraging, that the things that Jesus stood against has become the reputation of his followers, and my, if I can just, my, get to know me time here, you know, my, my mission in life is I want to do something to try to bridge that gap a little bit. I want I want the church to have a reputation for reflecting the things that Jesus was about. Real basic stuff here, okay? This is like Christianity 101. I would love it. I mean, can you imagine if, if you go meet somebody on the streets and, and, and you, you did your own survey and said, hey, when I, when I say the word Christian or, or church, what, what comes to your mind? How cool would it be for people to say, oh, you know what? Um, I'm not a religious person, right? You know, I haven't been to church in years, but... Man, when I think of Christian, I just think of people that are just, they, they love unlovable people. Like, that's just what they're known about. And, and, the, and the creepier you are and you walk in, you know, like, and you're going to be loved the most. Church, yeah, you know, I'm not really into church, but I just, I heard it's kind of this weird place where they will forgive you 70 times 7. Just over and over, like, no matter what you do, they'll, they'll just keep coming back, keep coming back, keep loving you, keep loving you. Church, yeah, you know, I'm not really into the whole church thing, but all I know is if I, if I fall into some sort of financial hardship or a problem with my marriage, like whatever, like I, I'm going to go to the church. Like, I, don't, I don't know what church is, but all I know is that grace hangs in the air so thickly you can chew it. What, what if that was the perception of the body of Christ? There's a, um, in Luke 15, Luke 15 is the story of the, the parable of the prodigal son. Famous parable, right? Prodigal son. Um, what, what people sometimes miss, though, is at the beginning of that parable, right before Jesus t- starts to tell that parable, in the very first verse of Luke 15, it says that sinners and tax collectors were drawn to him. And I, it, I feel like it was only a few months ago when I really noticed the kind of direction there, if you will. Like, like you read the Gospels, you know that Jesus went out of his way to talk to sinners and, and the outcasts and the marginalized and the poor and, and sinners and tax collectors. Like he, he went out of his way to, to go to those people. But this verse says that they were drawn to him. What was it? What was it about the presence of Christ that they found so compelling that they were drawn to Christ. Now, now let, let me back up a little bit because we've been in Matthew um, for the past several months. Remember, Jesus, Jesus cared deeply about obedience. He was not some ethical jellyfish, okay? A, a, you know, a moral Gumby, right? He was going to bend whatever. Oh, you know. He, he, didn't, he didn't just walk around and say, oh, you live however you want. It doesn't matter. That's good for you. That works for you. That makes you happy. Then keep doing that. What makes you happy? Is that okay? Yeah, keep doing That wasn't Jesus at all. In fact, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, is, is probably the most stringent ethical speeches of all religious history. Literally. Like, go read it. I mean, it, this is crazy high standard Jesus has. So they were drawn to him not because he didn't care about obedience. He cared deeply about obedience, about holiness, about righteousness, but there was something about his love for humanity that was like a magnet that was drawing crazy, messed up people to himself. 
I want you to flip over to, uh, we're going to be in Luke 19. Uh, Luke 19, famous story about Jesus and Zacchaeus. We got Bibles coming around, by the way. They're really cheap. Um, they're actually free, I think, right? Do you give them away or do you just rent them out? Give them away. Free Bibles. There you go. Grace. <laughs> free Bibles. Um, Luke 19. Luke 19 is a famous story of uh, Jesus and Zacchaeus. And again, I love, I love going to the Bible, looking at familiar passages and familiar topics to say, let's, let's clear aside what we always thought about this doctrine, this idea of grace and this passage, and let's get to the meat of what's going on here, and let's invite God to strike us afresh with old truth. Um, I'm reading verse 1, Luke 19. It says that, it says that he, Jesus, uh, entered Jericho and was passing through. He's on, he's on, his, way to, um, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Okay? He's, he's been traveling from Galilee down the Jordan Valley, going up to uh, Jerusalem. It's passing through, passing through Jericho. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass by that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received, and, and, and Zacchaeus received Jesus joyfully. Now here uh, it says, and when they saw it, they all grumbled, saying, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So, so sometime between verses 6 and 7, the scene changes from like, you know, uh, the public space, the, the town square in Jericho or whatever, to the actual house of Zacchaeus. So by the time we get to verse 7, now he's just shift your scene to inside the house of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it full, fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save uh, the lost. So, uh, Jericho enters, or so Jericho, Jesus enters this uh, rather small town of Jericho, and he's mobbed by a bunch of people. I mean, they just picture just a, a very diverse crowd. You got, you got religious leaders, you have some thugs, you have some political leaders, maybe a couple Jerichoan celebrities, you know, I don't know. I mean, famous people, unfamous people, whatever. It's a diverse crowd. But Luke draws attention very quickly to the fact that Zacchaeus, um, was there, and we're only given two descriptions of him, that he was a tax, a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Now, again, here's that familiar thing, that the whole idea of tax collectors. We know if you've been a Christian um, it, for a few weeks, even, like, you probably heard tax collectors were, were really bad people, but here's the thing. You, we, don't, we don't have a modern category to compare tax collectors too. And then this is what's hard. You know, don't, don't think like IRS agent, oh, I hate those people. They take my money and everything. You know, like that's, that's not, not even close to tax gatherers. Tax gatherers were so entangled in a, in a multifaceted web of immorality that, that we don't, I don't think we have in, any modern day category. It's almost like we have, to, we, have to, we have to kind of create a new category. So just imagine like you know, you have a, a guy who's a, a, he's a drug dealer, um, he's a pimp, 
And, and in his spare time, he runs a porn industry. Like, he, he's, he's, that's, that's how he's making his wealth. He, he runs the porn industry. And then he's also, he's taking much of that money and sending it overseas to fund ISIS. Okay? I don't know. I'm just trying to stack, you know. And he started Ebola. Okay? I mean, this, this guy, <laughs> he's got just, I mean, Picture somebody that just, you just don't, he's so far off the chart of sin that, that, you, that you just, you want nothing more than to destroy this guy. Um, and it says that he was a chief tax collector. But he's so good at what he does that they gave him several promotions. And he was rich. I mean, he's not only skimming off the top, but he's skimming a lot off the top. Chief tax collectors weren't even liked by other tax collectors because you have the other tax collectors like Matthew, Levi, in, in the book of Matthew. You know, he's, he's kind of an on-the-ground guy, and he's giving money to the chief tax collector, and then Zacchaeus is skimming off the top of him and then giving it to Rome. So he's hated by other tax collectors. As you may know, I mean, first century, you have Rome, a, a massive pagan empire that has taken over Israel. Just picture, I mean, this is a really, I wish there's a better analogy to this, because I don't, you know, the, the, the new Red Dawn movie, I don't know that, I like the old one better, but, you know, as Americans, we don't, we don't know what it is to be taken over and oppressed by somebody. That's why, that's another reason why we don't understand tax collectors. Picture, I don't know, picture ISIS or North Korea or whatever, taking over America, and now the friend you grew up with, you went to church with, he went to Rev, he was a, he was a leader at Rev, I don't know. And now he is actually working for that oppressive regime, sending money to them, funding them. In, um, in Jewish tradition, tax collectors were considered the same as thieves and murderers. And, and their occupation, so, I mean, tax collectors were known for being, not just their occupation was bad. I mean, really, by definition, it's political and religious treason. That's, that's their job. But they were known for living the most excessively immoral lives. Their occupation was considered worse than being a camel driver or a dung collector. And it's just a quote from something I read. Um, I don't know what's so bad about camel driving personally, but dung collecting I get. Okay, that's pretty bad. You go around collecting dung, that's your job. Um, they were known to being on par with that. And they were known for being past the point of repentance. They were believed to be so immoral that there's no way, it's impossible for them to actually turn to God. That's Zacchaeus. So he goes, he climbs to the top of this tree. Zacchaeus, or, uh, Jesus looks out and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now, we, we don't have... Um, Staying at your house, that's not just, hey, Zacchaeus, I, I need a place to stay. Can you, can you give up a spare room? Do you have an extra bed, you know? Staying at somebody's house or inviting somebody to come inside your home, which would always include sharing a meal together, taking care of, that, that was an invitation for relationship, for friendship, for reconciliation, for peace, this is not just, you know, hey, I got an extra room. This is, I must come and be your friend. I must be with you. I must share a meal with you. I must 
learn about you and you learn about me, we must be, we must be friends. This has to happen. Now, here's the thing. And the, and the crowd gets upset, right? I, I Look, take our modern-day analogy. I, I don't know if anybody here, including myself, wouldn't have been upset. They, they start grumbling, saying, of all the people, he's going to go be with that guy? Here's the thing. If Jesus, if Jesus had called Zacchaeus on the carpet, you know, look at, you know, Hey, Zacchaeus, you, look, come here, you. You know, get down here right, right now, right now. You know, grabs him by the feet, turns him upside down, shakes, shakes all the money out of him. You know, he's a little guy, so he can probably do that, you know. <laughs> You've got to repent from your idolatry, your greed, your extortion, your oppression. I mean, he has a laundry list of things he could have just blasted him with. If Jesus had done that, he would have been both truthful and just. Jesus could have called Zacchaeus on the carpet, and he still would have been the sinless, perfect son of God. There was nothing unjust about that, nothing sinful about that, nothing untruthful about that. And I think, really, he could have started a massive church right there, right? I mean, he would have had tons of people following him at that point. I mean, Jesus, Jesus really is a terrible church planner. You know, he, he, he would, he, if he wrote a church growth book, it would have just not sold at all. The publishers would have said, like, this isn't going to work. This, is, this isn't how you pick up your cross and follow. This isn't how you build a church, you know. He had an opportunity to win the crowd, and instead he dove into grace head first and invited Zacchaeus into a relationship with him. And the crowd was furious because when it comes to bad people, when it comes to bad people, the masses will always prefer justice to grace. When it comes to bad people, the masses will always prefer justice to grace. You give grace to good people and everybody cheers. You give grace to bad people. You make a lot of people upset. It's, it's, it's intuitive to love your neighbor. It's very counterintuitive to love your enemy. And Jesus says, um, when he looks at Zacchaeus, he says, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now that word, that word must is really powerful here. Uh, other translations say um, it is necessary that I stay at your house. I like that a little better. I think must is kind of like, Hey, I think it'd be kind of cool to sit at your house. Like, I want, to, I want to do that. Must can be weakened, but it is necessary is a little better. Um, the Greek word here is, is a short little word, D-E-I, if you trans do it in English, whatever, day. And, and the, here's the thing. And most of the time, like, when preachers talk about Greek, Greek words, it doesn't really matter, right? Just <laughs> you give a Greek word, you translate it, and they're like, well, that's just kind of what it means in English, right? Like, why would you... Wax eloquent on the Greek, but this one actually does. This one actually is, is a little bit hard to capture in English because day, the Greek word day, it is necessary, does not just mean I want to or I really want to or I'm kind of compelled to. The Greek word day is often used in the life and ministry of Jesus to refer to something that is under divine mandate, divine compulsion. Let me give you a couple uh, examples. Matthew 16, 21. It is necessary, 
day for me to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, ruling priests, scribes, to be killed and to be raised from the dead. Okay, that, that's not like, hey, I feel like being crucified today. <laughs> hey, I kind of wanted, no, this is, I am being compelled by the creator of the universe to go to Jerusalem and die for the sin of the world. Like, I'm compelled to do that. It's driving me like, like a hurricane behind me. Uh, Luke 4.43, it is necessary day that I preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns as well because for this purpose I was sent. I was born in a feeding trough so that I can grow up and preach the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and I can't do anything else. I am under divine mandate, divine compulsion to do this. Fast forward to Jericho and Jesus scans the crowds of of good people and bad people and religious people and political leaders and celebrities and Jericho, I don't know, athletes, whatever, I don't know, all these people. And he's like, oh, yeah, there's people here. And then all of a sudden he looks up and sees this creepy, twisted, weird, like from everybody else's perspective, a subhuman person. And his eyes light up and he says, I must be with you. I have, I have to, I'm under divine compulsion to build a relationship and enter into reconciliation with you, Zacchaeus. And the crowd must have just lost it. They, well, they did leave. They, they got all upset and kicked up dust and everything. And like, of all the people, you're going to go with him? I mean, that is so scandalous. He goes and, and he's invited into his house. And, and um, again, so if you go again to uh, verse 6, it says that he received, Zacchaeus received Jesus joyfully. And then he's inside the house. And when he goes inside, everybody grumbles, gets upset. And here's where I would expect, okay? Um, I would ex- this is what I would expect, okay? He's, he gets in the house and he shuts the door, closes the door, maybe locks it. And, just, you know, I can picture Jesus just thinking, all right. Look, Zacchaeus, didn't want to do this in public, you know, um, but seriously, dude, like, <laughs> we've got a lot of, we, we got a long way to go here, bro. Like, you get, you got extortion, idolatry, thievery, you're, you're, you're oppressing, you're doing all, you know. He could, he could have simply unleashed the law on, on Zacchaeus. Maybe he didn't want to shame him in public, but he could have certainly gone through the list of things he had done wrong. What I find fascinating is that Jesus' love has no footnotes to it. I just noticed this not too long ago. I, I used to have a, um, you know those Bibles with the red letters? I actually kind of like the red letter Bibles. You know where it has the, 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 when Jesus speaks, it's written in red, so you kind of know. Does anybody, does anybody have a red letter Bible? I can't see anybody here. How, how many, oh, oh. Mine doesn't. I got Jip. I got to turn it back in. Um, h- how many how many lines of red do you see in the story? Sections of red. Two. <laughs> Jesus talks twice in the whole story. His first line is, "Hey, you creepy, filthy, you know, <laughs> I need to go be with you." That's his first line. His second line is at the end, "Dude, you just got saved." You know what's fascinating, too? According to Jewish law, uh, if you want a verse, Leviticus 6.25, 
if somebody steals something, they're required by Jewish law, like biblical Jewish law, to give it all back, if they get caught, I guess, give it all back and add 20%. And so Jesus could have said, all right, look, let's go to Moses, you know, and here's the verse, like, look, dude, got to get it all back. In fact, you got to add 20%. He didn't do it. He, he just comes in. And, 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 and by entering into his house, he has demonstrated otherworldly, counterintuitive grace to Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is just absolutely blown away. You know, I picture Jesus is over there, you know, eating his falafel. <laughs> just, you know, drinking his wine, whatever. And, 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 and Zacchaeus is like, I want to get, ba- get back four times what I stole. <laughs> and, and I want to sell half my possessions and give it away. And I mean, Jesus say, whoa, whoa, slow down there, Cheetah. You know, like, let's, let's go easy on, you know. Jesus could have fronted, he could have smacked him over the head with the law, and he would have gotten compliance, maybe a form of obedience. But Jesus desires, Jesus desires radical, counterintuitive, reckless obedience. And the way Jesus gets there is by loving without footnotes. And this is um. This is this has been such a tension, I think, in the Christian faith, and it even came up last last week. Scott, you asked a question that kind of dealt with this a little bit during during the during the panel thing, and you know, w- when do we love, and when do we? What about obedience and, and loving people like crazy, and then, but then there's a time we just need to get obedient. And, and you look at Jesus, and again, he cared. Look, he cared deeply about obedience, deeply. His desire, he says, I came to heal the sick. Heal the sick, right? Not just love on the sick and say, hey, how's that sickness coming for you? You know, I mean, he wanted to heal the sick. He desired obedience. But how he got there was by loving unconditionally, love without footnotes, love without caveats, love that forgives 70 times 7 until that love pushes obedience out the other side. Never, never underestimate the power of, and presence of the love of Christ being mediated through the unconditional love of his people. Um, Paul, in Ephesians 1, says that the body of Christ is the presence, like the church, the body of Christ, the gathering of God's people, is the presence of Christ on earth, Ephesians 1, 22. We are, as a, as a gathering of, of God's people, we are um, not just people that come on Sunday, you know, because Saturday doesn't work and we're going to sing songs and go home. This, this is, there's something cosmic going on here, right? This is the gathering of God's people, and we are demonstrating and manifesting the presence of Christ on earth. And so we, as believers, we are to take who Jesus was and demonstrate that sort of presence to a lost and dying world. Sometimes that involves speaking and talking and evangelizing and confronting and doing all these things we do. I'm going to say sometimes you love, you dive into somebody and love them unconditionally and you may actually get that obedience and transformation you desire. There was um, a story I, I uh, 
read a while back. Um, I don't know where I found this. It was tossed around on Facebook or something, you know. Um, uh, the, title, the, the title of this article was, When Two Lesbians Walk Into Your Church. <laughs> I want to read, read about this. And um, tells a story of a girl named uh, Amy. who was a lesbian for many years. Uh, and she had just broken up with a, a girlfriend of nine years and now is entering into a new relationship with another girlfriend. And um, they're, not, they're not Christians. They're not associated with the church at all, not religious at all. And uh, one morning uh, they wake up and Amy, Amy tells, looks at her girlfriend and says, Hey, let, let's go to church. And her girlfriend says, you're crazy. Why, like, why would I ever want to go to church? And she's like, no, no, let's, 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 let's go have some fun. Let's go to church. And, uh, she, and she says, you know what their motto is, you know, come as you are. But we all know that that means come as you are unless you're gay. Your girlfriend says, all right. A little scared, you know, but uh, we'll, we'll go do this. Um, According to Amy's words in this article, she says, I came on a mission to shock people. Um, my girlfriend and I would hold hands in front of people, but instead of the disgusted looks of contempt we expected, people met eyes with us and treated us like real people. And, and you know, I, I, I remember reading that line and being kind of excited, like, oh, that's, this, is, this is getting good, this is cool. But then I was... I was a little discouraged, quite honestly. What, what, why would they not expect to be treated like real people? Why were they shocked when people said, oh, you're a human being, and they looked them in the eye? We have work to do as a church. Not us, but everybody. We have much work to do until people like Amy and her girlfriend would race to church to be treated like a real human if we were to manifest the presence of Christ. People met us, met with us, or met eyes with us and treated us like real people, so we started coming to church weekly. Of course they would. We kept moving closer to be in the front of each, you know, kept moving closer, closer, you know, all the way to the front pew, <laughs> trying to get a reaction so that, we'd, so that we'd be rejected sooner than later because they're probably just feeling very comfortable and like their mission is failing and like when we couldn't shock people we started trying and started learning she says not long after that my girlfriend and I stopped seeing each other but I kept coming to church because I was searching for something Amy admits I definitely wasn't looking to change so this wasn't you know hey glad you're here you know make sure you come back and change next week It wasn't my lesbian lifestyle I was bringing to God. I don't, I don't know if Zacchaeus was looking to change in the tree when he hurried down off that tree. He was just excited to be loved. It wasn't my lesbian lifestyle I was bringing to God, but I wondered if God had answers to my deeper longings. The problem was I didn't trust God at all, but the more I listened and learned about the teachings of Jesus, the more I started to actually believe that God really did really did love me. Why did she not think the Christian God loved her? I heard more and more about being his masterpiece, and in time, I actually started to believe it. The more I believed God actually could see something of value in me, the more I 
trusted him. It was the radical counterintuitive love of Jesus mediated through his people, love without footnotes, that ultimately ended up bringing Amy to Christ. She ended up getting saved and Christian to this day. Not because of law, but because of grace. I'm going to have, uh, the, the band's going to come up, um, play another couple songs. Um, never underestimate the presence and power of the grace of Christ being mediated in the unconditional love of his people. Um, I, I don't think, as Christians, we, as we wrestle with this tension of what does it mean to, to get people to obey and, and get them to stop sinning and, and get us to stop sinning and us to stop, you know, disobeying. And, and, but we also have this grace thing. We've got to love people. I, I don't think these are at odds with each other. I believe that there is power for obedience, power for holiness and transformation by means of this radical love of Christ. Paul says something uh, interesting in Romans. He says, the kindness of God leads to repentance. Romans 2. The kindness of God leads to repentance. I, how, I wonder if I took a survey, how many of you would, would if I switched that around, if, if you would have been shocked by it at all, if it would have... Because I think we do deep down in our transactional bones, we think that our repentance will lead to the kindness of God. God doesn't need us to clean up our act to move his heart to love us. His heart was moved to love you the second you were born. And it's that kindness that is going to keep chipping away until it produces obedience, pushes obedience out the other side. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great love, and I I pray that as a body, that Rev 22 would be known. I I pray that our church would destroy those statistics, Lord, that when people hear about this body, what you're doing here, and the love that pours out, that, that, um, that they would be challenged and attracted and drawn like they were to Jesus in Luke 15. I pray that people would be drawn to us because they know that they will receive love without footnotes so that they can be healed of their sin. We love you, Jesus, in Christ's name.